Thank you. Thank you very much and welcome. I'm Father Mitch Packer. Welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the sacred scripture. We look at it through the lens of Catholic sacred tradition, but we're especially focusing on how do we come to the text of the gospel and pray through the gospel, not only reading it, but making it a part of our meditation. So that's going to be a big part of our theme. And uh, of course, we'd love to have you become part of the show. You can do it like these nice people, mostly from the Republic of Texas, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and a few folks from the great state of Kansas are here and a few scattered others. And we'd love to have you come and join us when you get a chance. But you can also call in. If you live in North America, you can call one 800 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, you can still call, but the number is country code 1, area code 205-271-2980. You can also send us your questions and comments by email by writing to Scripture and Tradition at EWTN.com or follow and participate on the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now, our task today will be to finish up our look at the second miracle of the multiplication of loaves and fish. This is when our Lord fed 4,000 people on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. That's the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. And we'll also see the climax of his Gentile mission because he went to both Jews and Gentiles in, in this. And we'll also talk about Jesus dis, dismissing the satisfied crowd and sailing back to the Jewish side of the sea. Now, if you're following along, you can use my book, which is called Praying the Gospels, Jesus, Miracles in Galilee. You can get that at EWTNRC.com, where it's item number 52885. And, you know, really this, just so you get perspective, we had gone through a couple years ago, actually, uh, a book I wrote, How to Listen When God is Speaking, How to Pray. That was the purpose of that. Now we're going through gospel texts. We went through one book on Jesus beginning his ministry. Now we are going on another book that is his, about his miracles in Galilee. So, again, trying to help all of us pray through Scripture. So, we are beginning with Mark chapter 8, verses 6 to 7 where it says, Then Jesus ordered the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and after giving thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute. And they distributed them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish, and after blessing them, he ordered that these two should be distributed. So, first of all, 
note that as our Lord does this miracle, he repeats the same pattern as when he did the first multiplication of loaves and fish. That was on the Jewish side. He fed 5,000 people there. And you see that he uh, repeats the actions by commanding people sit on the ground. Notice it doesn't mention grass. On the first one, they sat on grass because that place, which is still well known, that location has some springs of water that still flow, have tens of thousands of years. And that water makes grass available. On the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, it's more desert. There's less water on that side. The Sea, sea of Galilee is right there, but it slopes up, so it's not easy for the water to get up there. So there, it, there's not much grass. So they'd be sitting on the ground, and they, believe me, they'd be sitting on a lot of rocks because it's a lot of uh, volcanic stone on that east side. And then he took the seven loaves, and the Jewish side he had five loaves. Here he has seven. And he gave thanks and broke them and gave them to the disciples. And then he blesses the fish too. And notice that it says there were uh, small fish, a few small fish. Last week, I believe it was, I made mention that on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, the kind of fish that you find are sardines. It's a small fish about this size. And that's what they catch there because the water is cooler on that side of the lake. But on the west side, they catch bass. They call it today St. Peter's fish. We call it tilapia. That's where that came from. The Israelis figured out that tilapia will grow very quickly and they commercialize that. So there are tilapia farms all over, but they call it St. Peter's fish. And instead of eating fillets, they roast it whole, which I like better. But be that as it may, uh, there's, so it's different kinds of fish and it fits the environment. You know, they, they, the gospel writers were not just sort of, oh, we'll sort of make up something. No, this is the way it was. It fits the environment. Uh, when they're on the right, correct side of the seagull, they knew what was going on. The reason I mention this is that we also see a similar pattern at the Last Supper. And... You see, for instance, in Mark chapter 14, verse 22, while they were eating, he took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, take this, uh, this is my body. So he does the same thing. He blesses the bread, breaks it, and then gives it. So this multiplication of loaves and fish in both times in Mark and the Last Supper are, have these actions in common because this is preparing the way for the Last Supper. And a matter of fact, St. John mentions 
that the multiplication of loaves and fish took place exactly one year before the Last Supper. He says the feast of Passover was about to start. So our Lord you know, was definitely trying to make a connection between the multiplication of loaves and fish and the institution of the Eucharist, where in one sense, this would be only uh, analogous sense, he multiplies his presence. Jesus makes himself present in the Holy Eucharist by saying, this is my body, that he's going to be this, not just bread, but it is his body and blood. Uh, because in fact, it's worth noting in the Gospel of John, the first miracle at the wedding feast of Cana happens right before Passover. And you see in verse uh, 12 that they go to Passover in Jerusalem right immediately after. Second Passover in the Gospel of John, Jesus multiplies loaves and fish. And then at the third Passover, he gives us his body and blood. That these miracles were pointing towards the institution of the Eucharist. And we should see that this was so important for our Lord, that he had this three-year preparation, one step at a time. And that's why at the Last Supper, he will say, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new covenant. He introduces his new covenant at the Eucharist. And this is something that we ourselves repeat uh, every time we celebrate Holy Mass. Now, this is a way to see that the multiplication of loaves and fish are pointing to something more. It's pointing beyond just eating because, you know, feeding 4,000 people who are hungry is a good thing. But later on, they needed food the next day. It's not as if our Lord kept the multiplying of loaves and fish every day for them. So they would be hungry after that bread. But he is instead pointing us toward the Eucharist so that we eventually get a sense of desiring the bread of life, his body and his blood, that give us eternal life. That's where Mass is so crucial. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot have life within you. But whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will not die forever. That's the key of the meaning of the Eucharist. So that's what makes it so important. And it's also important that this miracle in chapter 8 to see that he is multiplying loaves and fish among the Gentiles because the Eucharist is not going to be only for the Jewish believers. The apostles will be the first ones to receive the Eucharist, 
but the apostles will also bring the Holy Eucharist to the Gentiles. And that includes most of us. Most of us come from a non-Jewish background. And that he multiplied on the Jewish side and on the Gentile side to show that the Eucharist is pointing towards uh, all people. And that's very, very important. You see that, in fact, while our Lord emphasized a couple of times in the gospel that he came for the Jews first and then for the Gentiles. So that was his goal. But he is very clear that it is meant for the Gentiles. And salvation is meant for everyone. Look how St. Paul, himself Jewish, said and, and wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And similarly, in Romans chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, there will be anguish and distress for everyone who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Now the Jewish people received this first because they had been chosen by God to receive these promises so that when Christ acted, you would have a people that was prepared by a couple thousand years of history to understand the meaning of what Christ was doing. They already celebrated Passover, so they would understand that his death and resurrection were a Passover from death to life, from sin to salvation. And so many other elements of the faith made more sense because the Jewish people had been so well prepared and they knew so much of what the Lord had promised them. So they could recognize it and they became the first missionaries to the Gentile people. So that's all extremely important. And this is something that we also, one other thing I also want to keep in mind especially for certain modern uh, commentators. I mentioned when we discussed the first multiplication of loaves and fish, some, uh, there were a couple of German theologians back in the early 1800s who said, well, really, the big miracle of the multiplication of loaves and fish is that Jesus got everybody to share the lunch that they had brought with them. And I say, you know, I see a couple of people looking at me like, what? <laughs> you mean for the last five or six hours, you've been sitting in the hot sun with a tuna sandwich. You want some? I've been hide, hiding it under my arm here. You want some? No, thank you. I'm good. Uh, <laughs> no, it's not. And, and 
people who said that really had no comprehension of Middle Eastern people. Jewish people and Canaanites and Arabs have such a strong sense of hospitality. One of the last things they do is hide food. They share. That's normal. It's normal part of life, even if you have only a little bit. I told the story a couple months ago about the Bishop of Nazareth, who grew up in Nazareth. You know, he used to play soccer in between the house of Our Lady and the house of Joseph. You know, that's, that was their soccer court, because they didn't have a field, so they just did it in the courtyard. And he said, Abunamich, if I had 10 children and one piece of bread and a stranger comes to my house, he will eat and we will go hungry because hospitality is too high a virtue. You don't uh, hide food. So this is a, a silly uh, kind of interpretation by rationalistic people who don't understand that Christ did this miracle and he is giving us a clue about what he will do when he changes bread into his body and wine into his blood. Now, this is something that, in terms of your own prayer, you ought to picture yourself at this place. Again, a lot of gray stone from the lava. There's there a lot of volcanoes around there. Um, they're, they're all extinct now. They don't, they don't have any activity um, except far below the ground. They make hot springs. So you still have hot springs over there from underground activity, but there's no uh, volcanoes going off now. But there were. So picture this slope down. It's not radical, but it's a, it's a, it's a slope toward the Sea of Galilee. Uh, sea of Galilee is in a bowl of sorts. And um, it's a gentle slope down. That's where people were sitting. And perhaps, you know, picture how, why would you have come there? Maybe you had somebody who was sick or you wanted to hear the wisdom that Jesus taught. Could be either one or both of those. That's more likely the case. And imagine yourself sitting with our Lord. And as you're sitting with him and experiencing, you know, the answered prayers that he heals people. And as you start to experience a certain amount of hunger and he feeds everybody, that you experience these answered prayers and answered needs. This is what our Lord does for you in that situation. And discuss the deeper meaning of this multiplication of loaves. What's going on here? What's the deeper meaning of the healing? What, how does this affect you? And especially discuss with our Lord. Imagine yourself in a conversation when he answers prayers. You weren't so sure that he would answer, but he does. What is the meaning of those answered prayers? And what is the meaning of prayers he doesn't answer? Sometimes the answer is no. He answers, but it's no. And 
it's not that that's meaningless, it's like, well, it just failed. No, there was something going on in your relationship with Christ when he didn't answer. And listen to him speak about why certain, what would he say about why some prayers were answered, some were not? What kind of perspective might he give? And then conclude with praying the Our Father. In that wonderful prayer, asking for our daily bread, talk to him and see what it is that he does to do the will of the Father. Well, we'll take a little break. We'll come back and go on with our Lord dismissing the crowd and sailing back to the Jewish side. Please stay with us. Thank you, thank you. Also want to invite you to join me on a pilgrimage to Poland. Uh, we'll be going in the footsteps of Polish saints from May 8th to 18th. Uh, if you are interested in more information, go to mateotravel.com. Mateo is M-A-T-T-E-O, mateotravel.com. Uh, we'll be especially focusing on St. Andrew Babula, uh, not well known in the West, well known in Poland, and the patron saint of EWTN in Poland, EWTN Polska. So uh, if you want to join us, you'd be very, very welcome. Poland is a really cool place to, to go. All right, let us now go to the next reflection, and that's in Matthew, excuse me, in Mark, Mark chapter 8. Uh, this is where he dismisses the crowd and goes to the Jewish side. In Mark 8, verses 8 to 10, it says, They ate and were filled, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Now there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. So let's take a look at that. So, again, on the Gentile side that we've just been looking at, there were 4,000 people, while in Mark 6, verse 43, there were 5,000 Jewish men plus women and children. So it was a smaller crowd, small crowd in the second multiplication on um, the Gentile side. And uh, on the first multiplication of loaves and fish, there were 12 baskets uh, full of leftover bread. Uh, by the way, this idea of collecting the bread uh, is very, very Middle Eastern. The idea that you would throw bread away is just, that's fingernails on the blackboard, right? We have a Lebanese descent lady here, and this is just not what you do. If you see 
a piece of bread that's been dropped on the street, you know, a big loaf of bread or something, you pick it up, kiss it, and put it on the place so the birds can get it. You don't just uh, step, step on bread. You know, bread is the staff of life. And it, you, know, you see that in Isaiah, for instance. And you don't waste food. You know, that's, that's especially bread. Bread is something that's uh, considered very, very important. So they would gather the scraps and not let them go to waste. Sometimes what they do with bigger scraps of bread, they take and put it in the sun to dry out. Then they'll feed it to the sheep and the goats, you know, because they can digest it better if it's been dried out, you know, so that's what they do. Uh, but they don't just throw them away. And it says on, in the first multiplication that they put it into 12 baskets. They use the word kofinoi. Kofinoi are wide weave baskets. Why? Because they had bigger fish. They would catch tilapia, you know, a bass. It's a semi-tropical bass. So you have a wider weave basket. While on the east side, in the Gentile side, they collected seven baskets. And these are into narrow weave baskets, spuridia. A spuridion is a narrow weave basket because it's smaller fish, so you have to have a narrow weave. If you have a wide weave, the fish can get caught in between the basket warp and woof. So you don't want that, that can make a mess. So you, uh, especially if you forget it. So you have these narrow weave. And again, it's dealing with the local environment. It's not just sort of making stuff up or something. No, it's, this is the way it is at the Sea of Galilee. And that's very important to understand that. And, you know, uh, and that's what you would have for those little sardines that are still caught there, by the way. You still eat those. You, you don't even have to debone them. Just sort of deep fry them and eat them whole. They're good. They really are good. Now, it's also worth noting that the number seven is mentioned, that's seven. And this is uh, something repeated uh, for the number of loaves, that's how many loaves, and the number of baskets. Seven was a perfect number. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a number that you can't divide, you know, other numbers into. So that's good, and uh, it's considered a perfect number. So it, it symbolizes perfection and wholeness, and that, uh, it, whereas 12 on the Jewish side would symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel. It makes sense, you know, so they, so they have that kind of uh, emphasis going on. And, you know, ancient people paid attention to these details. They would, they would notice all these things. And uh, it, it's something that uh, they would pay attention to the symbolism of it. You know, that would be still very normal in the Middle East. Also, you know, we took note that uh, our Lord had been reluctant to send the people home if they were hungry. You know, Mark Chapter 8, verse uh, 2 to 3, it says, I have compassion for the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. But I send them away hungry to their homes. 
they will faint on the way, and some have come a great distance. So he is showing compassion for their physical needs. This is part of the mystery of God becoming flesh. He's not there just for our spiritual needs. He also is, has a body himself. He took on human flesh. Remember how it said in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he understands what that means for us to be hungry. He had experienced hunger a number of times. So this compassion uh, is a strong issue for him. But at the same time, he also will have this compassion for their spiritual needs and spiritual hunger as well. Now, after having taken care of their physical needs, then he goes back across the sea. He goes across the Sea of Galilee. The width of the, you know, from east to west is only about five miles by boat. Okay? Uh, you take the long way around, but you can drive all the way around the whole Sea of Galilee in you know, an hour and a half at most. It's about 12 miles by five to seven miles, depending on where you are, because it narrows. And after taking care of their physical needs, Jesus goes back to the other side, the Jewish side. This is his fifth journey back and forth. And this is a very important element. Uh, he goes to a place called Dhammanutha. No one knows exactly. When they wrote the gospel, they knew where it was, but we're not sure. There's no ruins or anything that let us know exactly where Dhammanutha was. I suspect it was one of the harbors. There are 17 little harbors around the Sea of Galilee for boats to come into. So I suspect it was one of those. But we don't know which one. The important thing is that this multiplication of loaves and fish on the Gentile side is the high point, the climax of his mission to the Gentiles. He'd gone back five times. And what it's interesting to note that what he did on the Jewish side, he repeated on the Gentile side. His first miracle on the Jewish side was casting a demon out of a man. First thing he did when he went to the Gentile side was cast a demon. Now, the guy on the Gentile side had more demons. He had a legion of demons, thousands of demons. Well, the Jewish guy only had one. But it's that kind of uh, going back and forth was part of that. And we see that um, when we pray about this, one of the things we can do is imagine ourselves getting into the boat with Jesus. Put yourself there. It's always good to read the Gospels and imagine that you were there. That's why people love that TV series, The Chosen. It helps give you an imaginative sense. Well, use your imagination to imagine, uh, picture yourself being there. And speak to our Lord about his mission to the Jewish and Gentile side. What does that mean for our world? And what would you, when you think about today, 
I don't like it the way so many of our politicians want to divide us up and see us, well, we're going to do this for this group now. And right now they, they favor some groups and disfavor other groups. But in the past, they disfavored those groups they now favor and favor the groups they disfavor. This is why you have to keep this in mind. Many, many people in politics need to have two sides to their mouth so they can speak out of both of them. Am I off on that? And they want to keep us against each other. So they can do, it's put, it's like when you have a cat, you get something shiny and put it over here to distract the cat. They want to distract us from being about the business we have to be about. No, 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 no. What would our Lord say to us about what he wants? Because he went to everybody. He would address different needs of different groups. And what would it mean for today? Like, who would be the outsiders today? What would you want as a mission to people that you might consider outside? What would you be looking for? What obstacles would you see? Talk to them about. Here's the difficulty in reaching these people here or these people here. And what are the opportunities you yourselves have to reach out to other folks who might be different than you or the same. Doesn't matter. Our Lord wants us to reach out to everyone. Always remember, it says in the first letter to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 4, God wills all people to be saved. He doesn't want anyone to go to hell. He'll respect their decision to prefer hell and they'll get their wish. But it's not what he wants. And so how can I go across any of the lines people would set up to manipulate us and to reach out to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ? This is the task, and that's worth contemplating. And then we can conclude with the prayer, soul of Christ, sanctify me, body of Christ, save me, blood of Christ, inebriate me, water from the side of Christ, wash me, passion of Christ, strengthen me. This prayer would be a great one for us to use in that context. All right. Let's now go to some questions. I'm going to start off with an email from Steve. He says, Father Mitch, your response to a caller's question last week about Cain's wife being a Neanderthal was curious. The Bible clearly says that Cain and Abel were not the only children of Adam and Eve. Uh, Josephus, citing the antiquities of the Jews, said Adam and Eve had at least 56 children. Okay. So that, and that was part of um, Jewish uh, tradition. Incest was allowed out of necessity to fill the earth and subdue it until the time of Moses. According to Genesis 2, there couldn't have been human-like creatures on earth before Adam and Eve, as Adam was the first man and Eve was the mother of all the living. 
happen, the gap theory and pre-Adamic judgment from God doesn't hold true either, since how can there be a judgment without sin if sin only entered the world through Adam? Why are you spouting this Neanderthal falsehood? Stephen in Stephen Knoxville, Tennessee. Well, for one thing, I don't really think it's false. It may not be false. And, and here's the, the issue at stake, Steve. It says that Cain was cast out. He wasn't allowed to be with the, his family anymore. Murder of his brother had excluded him. Secondly, Adam is the first man. And this would be the first Homo sapiens. And this is something that genetics has, um, you know, uh, shown that, you know, you can trace back mitochondrial changes in DNA. This is, and that follows through the female lines. Based on that, in doing the Human Genome Project, the, the geneticists say you have to recognize that Homo sapiens, Homo sapiens, goes back to one woman. This is a change in one individual woman that makes us Homo sapiens. But Cain, it said, goes to these towns. And there are the, the, these towns that, that he goes off to in the east. And he's excluded from the family of Adam. So based on his exclusion and his going to already existing settlements, I propose as a possibility that Neanderthals could have been the people to whom he went. And I base that both on the existence of a number of skeletons that showed that the individuals were half Homo sapiens and half Neanderthal. Secondly, the existence of Neanderthal DNA in the DNA of people from Europe and Western Asia. African people don't have Neanderthal DNA unless they marry into uh, people from Europe because Neanderthals never went farther south than Israel. They just didn't go farther south. Um, they, I don't know, uh, they seem to like the cold. Remember, they lived under, uh, they're, they're about uh, 200,000 plus years earlier than Homo sapiens. Their own species, they're not our ancestors, they're not, you know, where we came from or anything like that. That's not the case. But they did pre-exist us, and they did have settlements, mostly hunter-gatherer moving around, but someplace they went to regularly. And the fact that we have their DNA in our DNA, only 3 to 5%, uh, not a lot, but some, shows that they could, uh, you know, you know beget children together. So it's a theory. It's not a theological surety. 
And I'm not, and that's something, I'm glad that you sent that email, Steve, because it's not like I'm saying this is dogma and you have to believe. No, it's a theory, but it makes some sense of certain elements of Cain being excluded and yet going to other settlements and Homo sapiens just got started. So that, uh, especially since when you look at the text, uh, Cain and Abel are the first two kids, and we don't know of any others until later. So that's that's what we that's why I hold that. Okay. If you don't like the theory, uh, you don't have to follow it. It's just a theory. All right, we're going to take a break. Come back in a couple of minutes. So please stay with us. I uh, just want to remind you uh, tomorrow on EWTN Live at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, we will be speaking with Father Michael Giesler about the mystery of co-redemption and how each one of us can participate in the redeeming work of Christ by bringing Christ's truth and joy to the world. And he came from... Uh, a tradition where they rejected that idea. Uh, and so it was, no, no, it's all, all God, and we don't take part in it. And he has some biblical reflections to show why he became Catholic. So it'll be a good show tomorrow. All right, we have a caller. We're going to start off with Charlene. Charlene, where are you calling from? Augusta, Georgia. Good to have you. And what can Thank we do you. for you? Father, what's the difference between transubstantiation and consubstantiation? Sure. All right. You know how we say in the creed that he is consubstantial with the Father? Yes. Yes. And, and in Christ's case, he and the Father have the same substance, but he also has, uh, you know, two uh substance, two natures, okay? And that's going to be one of the issues here. In the doctrine of consubstantiation and the Eucharist, it means that uh, they believe, in this. Martin Luther was the one who proposed this, that he proposed that it is the body of Christ, and at the same time, it has the substance of being bread, so it has two substances. It is the substance of bread and at the same time, the substance of the body of Christ. Now, the problem that we have with that is, uh, you know, you don't have two substances except in the case of God made man. So otherwise you don't uh, have two substances. And 
so we, we believe in transubstantiation. Transubstantiation teaches that the substance of bread, so but what do they mean by that? Not the color, weight, or taste, but the very breadness itself. So you can have white bread, pumpernickel bread, you can have whole wheat bread, rye bread, cornbread, all kinds of things. And there is something of breadness that is the substance of any one of those. The flavor, weight, and color varies depending on what you make the bread from. But it's still bread and it's not a cookie, right? So that's and what we believe is that the breadness is what becomes the body of Christ. Same thing with wine. Wine can be white wine, red wine, rosé. It can be sweet. It can be dry. All different kinds of wine. But there's a wineness that is different than beer. Beer has different kinds too. So there's a beerness in IPAs and lagers and wheat beers and so on. All different kinds. But there's beerness that is the substance and wineness. And what we believe is that the wineness of the wine becomes the blood of Christ. It keeps its accidental elements. No, it's, it's color. This is uh, even with regular bread. It's, it's an accident that it's white bread or whole wheat. It, it's still bread. Breadness transcends whole wheat or white and uh, rye, etc. But that doesn't change, but the breadness does. It becomes the body of Christ instead of breadness. Okay? So that's the, the, the difference. Whereas uh, in Luther's teaching, it keeps the substance of breadness and it, stay, it is at the same time the substance of the body of Christ. Now, this is something that we think um, is impossible for the same thing to have two uh, substances. So that's the, the dispute between uh, Luther. Though Luther himself said transubstantiation is possible, but I prefer consubstantiation. And he disagreed with uh, Huldreich Zwingli from Switzerland, who said it's not the body of Christ at all. In fact, that split them apart. So they got mad at each other. Had a temper tantrum. Ma'am, where are you from? I'm from Hazel Green, Alabama. Good to have you here. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. And what can we do for you this fine day? Well, Jesus said, take up my cross and follow me mm -hmm. before he was crucified. We have an idea of what he meant by cross, but I'm wondering what did his listeners think when he said that? They had the same thing in mind. In fact, uh, uh, just a couple years before our Lord was born in 6 BC, a group of Jews started a revolt against the Romans and they burned a Roman city. And when the Roman army came and caught them, they crucified the people and they just put crosses along the road 
and let them hang up there and die. So that's, uh, so people were well aware. It'd be like, you know, you see in the Old West uh, movies about uh, hanging trees and, you know, the gal you know, galleys to put people up. Uh, people knew exactly what it was to be hung. They had no question about it. And it was the same thing with crucifixion. It was well known. Ma'am, where are you from? I'm from Stratford, Pennsylvania. Good to have you here. And what can we do for you this fine day? Well, I sat next to a, a Maronite priest on, at the airport and mm -hmm. on the plane trip down from Pittsburgh. And he uh, spoke to me about um, how uh, sometimes people of different uh, uh, religions, uh, different Christian religions mm -hmm. may translate biblical passages different than we do as Catholics and uh, referred to sometimes it's lost in translations from the original Greek or even Aramaic mm -hmm. and Hebrew. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, uh, a couple things. Um, sometimes that can happen. Um, and, and this is where other scholars, Protestant or Catholic, have to check on scholars. That's one of the things that we do with each other. So, for instance, I, re, uh, I got into a debate back in 87 about Christ's priesthood. And this professor from the University of Chicago had translated the word in Greek from uh, Hebrews chapter 7 to mean untransferable. And so when I had this debate, and, and, it, and by that he said, the priesthood of Christ is untransferable. Therefore, you Catholics are not priests because according to that translation, the priesthood cannot be transferred from Jesus to Catholic priests or Orthodox priests. And... So I simply asked him, because I, I knew about this and uh, translation, and I'd done some research, and I said, can you point out to me any of the ancient texts where this word is used? In fact, it had never been used before the second century B.C. So it was a new word, basically. I said, can you show me any texts in the ancient literature, B.C. or A.D., that it meant untransferable. And he had never thought of that. It didn't occur to him to go look up the other writers who used the word. And then I said, the way that it is used in these ancient literature is to mean unending or eternal more like unending. And so it, what the Hebrews was saying is that Christ has an eternal priesthood, not an untransferable. And this idea of calling it untransferable was made up in the 1920s A.D. But you can't use modern interpretations for ancient literature. You have to use the way the ancients used it. And I said, it doesn't exist 
You're, that guy was making it up, so I wouldn't use that. But that's how we check on each other. We see how words are used. And, you know, those are your parent, your, your mom? No. no? Okay, but well, you've seen other people with children, maybe you've been around children. Yeah, you're an aunt. And one of the things is, uh, very often, you teach new words to kids by, you, by how you use it, right? And give a context. This is how you use that word. That's what we do. The same thing. And so that would be an example. The other thing, too, that you have to keep in mind, the King James Bible uh, has a few differences because it was using a manuscript that came from the 12th century A.D. from Byzantium, from Constantinople. Uh, a monk fleeing the Turks brought it west, and that's what they used. And they thought that was a really good manuscript, but it was very late, and in fact, we have much older manuscripts, and that's what we tend to use now. So we check that by the older ones, okay? So that's the kind of thing we do. That's why you study languages and documents and things like that. It's the life of a geek. <laughs> all right, well, the Lord bless you all and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by his peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And we can bring you this program and all of our other programs only because the network is brought to you by you. So please remember to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. And then we'll be able to pay our electric bill and all the other bills that we have. God bless you, and thank you for your support. Mm -hmm.